0: Welcome to Black Woman Red State, a podcast about campaigning as a black woman in a red state. The podcast that helps you do a deep dive about getting good policy across the finish line in less than ideal circumstances. It's also a podcast that touches on what it's like to be a first and only in that context and in many other contexts. And it's not all a big downer. The upside of all of the things that you are opened up to as a black woman in a red state with maybe not as many traditional social opportunities. Thank you so much for joining me. Let's get started. Now you may be asking yourself, what gives me authority and agency to have these conversations? A little bit of background. I have recently ended a career as an elected official in a state legislature in a red state. And I've lived in this great red state for most of my life. By way of comparison, I started my political career in in a solid blue state, that would be the Empire State, the great state of New York, for which the state I currently reside is not jokingly referred to as flyover country. It's been a great experience, obviously a rare one, with a 50-yard line seat in terms of history, And that's been a great honor and a privilege, and I don't want to minimize that in any way. It has also been somewhat difficult, because as any woman running for political office will understand, you are not the prototype for a candidate, in short, for any office. The idea that people have about a candidate still, in most minds, revolves around imagery for a male, oftentimes a white male who happens to be married to a woman and has children and all those wonderful things, which are not negative in any way, but just by entering the ring, by being in the political arena as anything other than the partner wife of a candidate is something new. So I do a fair amount of I won't call it belly button gazing, but a fair amount of reflection about why in the United States, in these modern times, and I'm recording this in 2017, that that imagery is still so strong. And certainly there are people all over that are encouraging women to enter political campaigns and run and win women with lots of direct experience and in leadership in community organizing, in community service, for many, many years. Why is it still strange to enter a campaign, or I should say considered odd, for a woman to enter the political arena as a candidate? So I hope that we'll talk a little bit about that. I know that we will, because I'm the person that's going to be talking, but I hope through my Facebook page, we can get and begin to have a dialogue about these ideas, and certainly not just to complain about them, but to address them very directly and to confront them and to maybe make it so that by the time somebody is who's listening to this as a younger person decides to enter the political arena, whether that's through policymaking or advocacy or as a political candidate, the... Framework. The mindset has shifted enough so that women can be considered equally for roles in all levels of elected office. What I've done to sort of organize my thoughts and by way of uh, stopping the procrastination that that's a barrier to success, not just for me, but for I'm, I'm sure many of the people that are listening to this podcast. I took a good old fashioned notebook and a pen. For you younger audiences, that's what people recorded things with before there were laptops and phones and things. So I committed these ideas to paper. Oftentimes, I will admit, these ideas were committed when I first started running for office. And when I first started running for office, that was about 10 years ago uh, lots of things happen in 10 years personally and professional and professionally in anybody's life. But I've got notes in here about breakfast meetings, lunch meetings, conversations that happened at events, usually somebody else's fundraiser, some nice notes about things people said when I knocked on their door and asked them for their support. So I guess it kind of all leads up to my favorite quote as I'm looking in the beginning of this notebook, and that is, a black woman can't win that district. A black woman can't win that district. Uh, I happen to be a registered Democrat. I have been ever since I registered at age 18. I find a lot of irony in that statement uh, considering the source, a uh, pretty powerful person in the world of politics in terms of seeking an endorsement from this person and the M-O-N-E-Y, the money that comes with that. Uh, there are lots of reasons for that statement, but I think I'm going to focus the, the this episode of the podcast on that statement and what it ended up meaning for me as a candidate, how that statement was interpreted by wonderful, very close friends of mine uh, as a challenge and not an indictment or as any sort of indication that I could not do it. Let, first, let me talk a little bit about where that comes from, where I think that came from. When I entered my race in first conversations In 2007, and filed the official paperwork, by the end of 2007, Nebraska, that's where I live, was just beginning to see waves of people leaving the Nebraska unicameral legislature due to term limits, which had been voted on and approved by the voters almost a decade before. For those of you who live in states where term limits are in place for members of your state legislatures, you may not be aware that this was a campaign brought in two different states from a national perspective. In short, in order to give more governors, governors more power, as you are aware there are three separate and co-equal branches of government. They are, as you'll remember from Schoolhouse Rock, the executive branch, the judicial branch, and the legislative branch. As legislators would stay in different bodies over decades, of course, legislators grow in terms of their influence, their political influence, Also, their knowledge base on different issues, and political will shifts over the time that legislators are in office. So they could maybe hang on to a bill or an idea, and the political winds shift nationally and internationally, or the demographics in the state shift, and they're able to move things forward and across that finish line I mentioned uh, with greater ease. But I digress. As I mentioned earlier, the topic or the subject of this episode is a black woman can't win that district. So I think for the rest of the podcast, I'll do a little bit of an analysis of that from a couple of perspectives. Let's start with a perspective of... Let's just call it loyalty. That is something that I hold as a personal value. Many people do. I think it's very important in political circles. I had the most competitive race that year in terms of state legislative races. There were six declared candidates in the race, Uh, a couple of whom had some experience as elected officials. One in particular had previously been a very loyal vote and a very committed political worker. That could have been a statement strictly out of loyalty to an individual, indeed to a family who had been very, very supportive of this gentleman who made this statement about my Uh, the district not being winnable by a black woman. Another reason, taking a step back, taking an intellectual step back away from it, another reason why something like that might have been said is for the reason that we talked about earlier, or I talked about to you, and maybe you've had that experience as a listener. There's an idea of who should have that job, whether it is a political job, or a corporate job or a job within an organization and that role has always been filled by a certain kind of person. In this case, a male person, a white person, a middle-aged person and why should it be any different? We've never seen anything different so why would it be different now? That could be the reason why this person is maybe more comfortable, a lot more comfortable based on the fact that everybody who's had the job before looked a certain way, and you can kind of maybe navigate that relationship in a more comfortable way. The third reason, and I'm going to go ahead and use the word, uh, the word race, which people often are accused of using the race card Uh, I wouldn't call it that. I would just say that it is another possible reason, especially since the person used my race as a description of why the support would not be there for me at this time. Part of the challenge with being black or being any other race other than European American or white in terms of pursuing one's goals, is that typically, even in 2017, that will be a factor, a reason to be uncomfortable with you. Unfortunately, in the minds of many, bringing up the fact that you're black, putting social policy, as it might relate to African Americans, at the forefront of any of your policy priorities radicalizes you. You, at this point, automatically, no matter how soft-spoken, no matter how mannerly, no matter how much a person of faith you might be, and law-abiding and mowing your lawn and all those things, that idea, mentioning race, radicalizes you. So again, in analyzing the topic of this podcast episode, was that something that the person said to marginalize my candidacy? Because the district that I was very proud to represent had what would be called, it would be called an influence district if you were a political scientist in that there was certainly a big block of potential African-American voters there. However, most of the people, ergo, most of the registered voters in the district happened to not be African-American. And this is looking at the statistics the year that I was a candidate. So I'm not certain, but as you can imagine, Anybody undertaking the endeavor to run for political office is going to face some uphill battles. And you might say to yourself, well, so what? What's the difference? This person said that, and people have free speech and they're allowed to say what they want to say, and I agree with that. My challenge is that, with it, is that at the time, Among all the candidates that I mentioned, and these would be candidates all across the state that are in competition, if you will, for funds to support their candidacy. Because don't kid yourself, you do need some money, if if for no other reason, to file the paperwork to run for office, to get even the most meager mailing pieces written, designed, printed, posted. You do need money to run for office at any level. It would be very, very difficult to to run as what would be described as a serious candidate without it. So what's the difference? Well, the difference is that when a person in this particular position in this case with the trade unions, says that many of the groups that are part of the trade union, trade union association who did not know me from previous experience or aren't that familiar with the district or aren't that familiar with the fact that I grew up in that district and have lots of relationships personally and through my family, the money does not come to your campaign. So that does make a difference. That, uh, that idea is very widely applicable, whether you are running as a candidate yourself or raising money for a cause, whether that's a nonprofit association or uh, something related to health, or even arguing in a corporate context for your salary. It, that perception, being out there, giving saying something like that out loud and repeating it, would have an impact. Another difference is that I have, I'm very proud of my family background, hardworking, people who are valued education, volunteered in their communities, in their church, in the schools. Um, There is an element of encouragement that is needed. Even if it's verbal encouragement, from the constituencies you hope to represent. That was never lacking when I went to the door to knock doors and ask for votes. Instead of saying, a black woman can't win that district, there existed the opportunity to say, oh, you're going to have to work hard. Somebody else did say that. I wish they would have not helped talk me into the race before they said that, but... That's better than a black woman can't win that district. Uh, good luck. That can go either way. When somebody says good luck to you, they might mean it sincerely, they might mean it a little bit sarcastically, but at least those two words together, you can kind of apply those to all the other things you're dealing with and say, yes, thank you very much for your support. But that is not what was said. So um, obviously I did win. I hold this person not with any particular hard feelings. When I started out on the campaign and fast, fast forwarding, and it does feel like a fast forward to where I am nearly 10 years later, you can certainly understand, whether it was because of loyalty to an individual or to a cause that they believed in, whether it was because they weren't used to seeing someone like me being a strong candidate, or whether on some level their personal views of race or the views that they think that their group held were the reason for that statement. I am merely mentioning it for a point of conversation and to remind everybody that words do matter, that your words are a reflection of oftentimes of where you're coming from. So whether it was said in haste, in a dismissive fashion, whatever it was, it did have an impact on the campaign. And who knows how it might have turned out. I obviously did work hard, and the funding that was needed did come my way at the exact right time, and I am very grateful for that. So I guess that's just another reminder. Everything happens exactly the way it's supposed to. While I'm on the topic of what typically happens in a campaign, uh, particularly if you are running as someone who doesn't look like the person that had the job before, and therefore may be perceived as uh, someone unfit for the role or still needing to prove yourself worthy of of any opportunity. What I identified, and looking back through my notes from 10 years ago, I have a little note here. It says, help versus advice. We all need advice. and ideally we want to take that advice from someone who, from where we are sitting, has been where we have been and has achieved the thing that we want to achieve. What I have learned, uh, so when I, what I learned as a first-time candidate is that I, people want to help. People want to lend a hand. And in many cases, they have been where you are. And they are sincere. What I noticed was, and it's very natural for people to have different uh, commitments and priorities, their families, their jobs, uh, other volunteer things they're interested in in their community or in politics. Help people out there who might be running for the first time can mean advice. I had many, many, many cups of coffees and breakfasts and lunches and conversations with people who wanted to help my campaign. Some of them were able to write checks or point me in the direction of some funding support. I'm grateful for that. I don't think I wasted any of it. As a matter of fact, when I was done running my first election i had money left over in the bank help means advice sometimes in this context and only advice there's you might need help for example putting out campaign signs or help to come and walk in a parade on a sunny Saturday before St. Patrick's Day, or help uh, putting stamps on thank you notes or something like that. More often than not, gentle listeners, help means advice. Not to say that advice is not helpful. Too often, however, I found that it was not tangible when people offered help. So, for what that's worth, that is a a word to the wise, and you might also just file it, ironically, as advice and not helpful, but there it is for you. Among the interests I have been fortunate to pursue outside of my volunteer work and my work as an elected official and other things, I have a very strong interest in musical theater. I know to some of you that sounds esoteric or maybe not a match for what you thought the podcast was going to be about. But what I'm hoping to drive home with this podcast is the unexpected and how important it is to analyze individuals on an individual basis. So that being said, I'm a big, big fan of musical theater and the arts in general, the performing arts in particular. It is right now the Lenten season and while I recognize for for my friends who are Bible scholars that Andrew Lloyd Webber's Jesus Christ Superstar might not be your your favorite idea of how one might invest one's listening time this time of year. I find a lot of inspiration from it, just from the passion of the music, the performances. The cast album that I'm listening to is from a production that went up in London. Boy, I hate to say it, it's almost probably 15 years ago. I was fortunate enough to see that performance. Uh, my sister-in-law bought me a, a ticket as a Christmas gift, so it was fabulous. As I was listening to it today, I found an intersection between my interest in politics, relationships, positional power, and the story. There's a part of the cast album and a part of the, the story of prior to the week leading up to the crucifixion of Christ where he is brought before Pontius Pilate and the high priest says you have to do away with this person we don't really have it in our law that we can do this so you have to do it so I thought that was an interesting way to Close out the first episode. The law, policy, who decides who has power, culture, they are all interplaying, and not just during the trial of Jesus, but right now, and right now in the United States of America. So, thank you very much for listening. Look forward to uh, getting better at this and having some guests on future podcasts, having your input uh, through the Facebook page. But thank you very much for listening to the first episode of Black Woman Red State. (laughs) Bye-bye.